You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Adam Nash. Adam is a proven advocate for development of products that go beyond utility to delight customers. At Dropbox, he led the teams responsible for growth, product strategy, product management, and product analytics for a platform with over 600 million registered users with responsibility for all of Dropbox self-service revenues, 90% of all companies' revenue in 2019. Before Dropbox, Adam served as the president and CEO of Wealthfront, where for four years he championed the creation of a new category of automated investment services. And now he is the CEO and co-founder of Daffy, which is a not-for-profit organization built around the simple idea that everyone should put something aside for those less fortunate than themselves. On today's episode, we talk about what is exciting between the intersection of finance and technology. What are some due diligences one should do on a company before investing? Knowledge, experience, or a network? What is the most important when building a company? What are common behavior biases and tendencies that individuals exhibit when making financial decisions? And much more. All right, let's start this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Adam, thank you for taking the time to be on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, your history, what you've done in the Valley, it's pretty incredible. It's amazing. For our audience out there, can you give a little bit of history, a little bit of background of your career up until this point before we dive into the questions? Yeah, I'm happy to. I like to think my career is somewhat of a common story in Silicon Valley. I was an engineer, computer science, did a bachelor's and master's, ended up going to business school as well. First job out of school, I thought I was joining Next. Really? It, it turned out that during my interview process, Apple acquired Next, or maybe Next acquired Apple. I'm still not totally sure what happened then, but ended up taking a job as a software engineer at Apple. Was there when it, obviously Steve coming back and the reboot of the company in a number of different ways. It was a difficult time. Uh, I jumped to a startup a couple years later. Start went public in 99. We were trying to basically invent the app store. We just didn't quite get there for desktop software, but basically everything that the app store does now for mobile software that we take for granted, we were trying to do with desktop software back in the 90s. After business school, I was in venture capital a couple of years. I worked at, then I just did a progression of tech companies. I always like to be on the forefront of where technology is solving problems for consumers, for customers. So I was at eBay for four years. I was the head of product at LinkedIn for a number of years through the IPO. Spent a couple stints at Greylock Partners back in venture capital a little bit as an EIR. And then when fintech was starting, it wasn't even called fintech at the time. I joined a company called Wealthfront. I was CEO there. Stayed there about four years. And so I did a tour at Dropbox and now have my new company, Daffy, which is focused on charitable giving. Okay. I'm not even sure where to start. Right there, you'd mentioned you were there with the transition of Steve Jobs at Apple. I'm kind of curious what that was like, just the company culture and the dynamics, what you saw, you felt there. But I'm also curious how you always kind of picked the, the winner four or five years in advance. 
Oh, I did not feel like I was picking the winner at the time. I would tell you, there was a lot of, when I made the decision, I remember to go to Apple, I was deciding between that and another a really hot company at the time that was called At Home, which was doing cable-based internet, which we all take for granted now. But I went to Apple mostly because I actually really love the platform. I, I love the technology. And I really thought the team was amazing. Those folks at Next, their qualifications, education, experience, I felt like I was going to learn a lot. But I did not feel like I was picking the winner. If I remember correctly, I bet one of my roommates at the time, I think back in 96, he bet me that Apple would be out of business and bankrupt within five years. So no one thought Apple was going to be this multi-trillion dollar giant now or the iPhone or any of this. But it was an amazing experience. Learned a lot about leadership, good, bad, amazing people. Guy who hired me is still at Apple, running software, Craig Federighi. Get wow. to see him every time he does the Apple show. He's the same. He's actually an amazing person. Hair might be a little grayer now, but otherwise is an amazing person. But yeah, I wrote a bit about it when Steve passed away. Obviously, I was 22. I didn't know Steve personally. I might have been in a small number of meetings with him, although he was pretty close with the next group. It was very interesting to see his behavior as a leader at the company versus the, the team that had been with him through the wilderness, the tough years in the 90s. That's interesting. How was it? Did you see, I'm not sure if I'd say loyalty or a clear differential in his interaction between the next team and the Apple team when they came together? A little bit. There certainly is a trust thing, right? Like the next team had been there. And so you saw this when the companies came together, when Apple acquired Next, a lot of Next people were put in important positions in terms of software, hardware, et cetera. But I, Steve's network and world was bigger than, than either just Apple or Next. And he brought a lot to bear to try and make Apple successful. But like I said, as a young member of the team, I just remember certain meetings, certain big kickoffs. I think when the article I wrote when he passed away was about that famous meeting where he threw Michael Dell's picture up on the wall. Have you heard the story? No. Oh, this is a famous story. And I'm not the only one to tell it, but I, I was actually at this meeting. So at the time, Michael Dell, Michael Dell's an amazing entrepreneur, leader, of course, but he could not have been hotter in the 90s. Like Dell was one of the companies that like if you were to make a list, a small list of big tech companies that were changing the industry, Dell was on it. And so he had been asked on some interview, I don't want to get the details wrong, the night before what he would do if he ran Apple. What would you do if you were running Apple? And his answer was some, basically some problems can't be fixed and you return cash to shareholders basically. I, I'm making it worse than it was, but it was pretty close to that. And so Steve calls a meeting. And if I remember, the entire Rhapsody team was in this meeting, right? So that was the code name for the project that became Mac OS X and the kernel of all the operating systems we take for granted now. And he put Michael Dell's photo up on the wall and he said, Michael Dell believes that every day you wake up and you come to work here and you destroy value. He, he believes that our shareholders would be better off if we all just gave up and just returned the money to the shareholders and said invested anywhere. And he's right, unless we change what we're doing and what we're focused on. And he proceeded to talk about how the industry didn't need another Dell. It didn't need another compact. It didn't need another beige PC manufacturer. It needed a company that was different. Obviously, this led into the Think Different campaign, et cetera. But it needs a company that makes products that people don't only love, they lust after. And he said, do you know how much market share BMW has? It, sometimes when Steve asks questions, you weren't actually supposed to answer, by the way. One of the tricks. Um, and he said, it, it's 1.5%. But you know what? No one knows that number and no one cares because you're either driving one or you're watching one when it drives by. He's like, that's what Apple needs to do. And he talked more about the vision, about the digital home and media and all the things that we were doing. But it really had an impact on me because we talked about working like a startup. He talked about giving out more stock options. But what he was really saying was, this is the journey we're on. This is the difference 
differentiated path or charting. And if you're not in for it, you should probably leave because it's going to be a lot of hard work. But if you believe that this is possible and you believe that you can do it, like he was excited about it. He wanted us to be excited about it. And it was a great leadership moment. Years later, when I saw kind of the ups and downs of different companies, always come back to what happened there at Apple. And like I said, not everything Apple did was right. And not everything Steve did was right. And a bunch of things. But it's an amazing turnaround. I think we all know this now, right? Like Apple is worth, what, $3 trillion. We watch every single product they launch. We pin the hopes and dreams of platforms on what Apple will do in the area, right? Wearables were hot. A lot of wearables haven't made it, yet the Apple Watch seems to be everywhere. The AirPods have changed how we think. It's amazing. So, But these leadership lessons are all through the history, I think, of the Valley. And I just feel fortunate that I got to see a couple of them. Speaking of the time in the Valley and ups and downs and lessons learned, you'd mentioned in 99, building that company that was a desktop platform. You've seen some peaks and valleys here. Do you have any uh, lessons learned from those times that you could be shared with our audience that are entrepreneurs out there that maybe this is their first time in kind of a, I don't want to say a, a valley, but there's definitely people saying right now it's tough times. Well, what's that old expression? History doesn't repeat, but it sure does rhyme a lot. Yeah, I've been reflecting a lot on that the last year or two, because in some ways, this is the fourth tech downturn I've been aware of, right? So when I went to school, it was the early 90s, and there was a recession there, right? Like it was Hewlett Packard, the, the, the granddaddy of Silicon Valley tech, right? The original kind of founded in a garage, Palo Alto, Stanford Connection, who had never, the HP way, had never done layoffs. 92 was doing layoffs, right? So when I was in school studying computer science, the industry did not look good, right? Companies weren't hiring. I think it was because of the budget cutbacks had flowed through the military to a lot of tech companies, et cetera. And so there was a lot of worry. I remember debates in school about how like you shouldn't major in computer science, at least electrical engineering was accredited and you could, you could get a job that way. These were real discussions. It sounds ridiculous that in the 90s, anyone would be concerned about someone majoring in computer science getting a job. But that was true. And then of course, the mid 90s changed every Everything. everything from Windows 95 and Netscape and the internet boom and companies were getting minted all over the place and it started seeming a little crazy and it was one of the reasons I ended up uh, going to business school but and then of course the bubble burst second downturn recession we all know about the great financial crisis in 2007 2008 2009 I was at LinkedIn at the time and then of course now doesn't seem like we've had a recession but definitely tech has had some major readjustments and we've had layoffs etc so yeah I think the lessons vary though are you talking about from the point of view of being an employee or as a founder or as an investor. I tend to think first individual people like their lives, their careers. But the great thing about Silicon Valley, the ups and downs is the bad news is you're never going to get rid of the ups and downs, right? The technology cycle is all about seeing something new. Wait, there was something expensive that's now inexpensive, something that was rare that now is ubiquitous. So in the whole world of literally millions of business problems and product problems and consumer problems, what problems can we now solve differently, better? And so there's always an early phase where that booms all these different ideas. And then it turns out building businesses is really hard. Building products is really hard. And most of those ideas don't turn out or some of them do turn out, but some turn out better and end up taking the space. And so you have a digestion period. It comes back and then there's another boom around that. There's all I'm an optimist. By nature, I always believe that there's opportunity and for both people individually, as well as for companies and products and technologies. But riding those waves is hard. Speaking about development of new technology and then reining it in the development, you're in forefront of fintech. What got you excited about that way back when it wasn't even called fintech or there probably wasn't even a 
a category of it. Yeah, that's a great example of, of waves, this fintech. So I wasn't joking. When I was when I went to Greylock, right out LinkedIn had gone public early 2011. I ended up moving out of LinkedIn towards the end of the year, joining Greylock. I was excited about new opportunities, new companies to build, new technologies, joined us in the IR. But yeah, fintech wasn't a word at that time. And actually, there really weren't any venture capitalists of significance in the top firms at the time who were focused on fintech, right? You had fo- people focused on consumer, obviously, with LinkedIn going public, Facebook going public, everyone was excited. What was the next consumer wave with unstructured data and Hadoop? Everyone was rebuilding the enterprise stack. You had all these people focused on B2B and enterprise businesses and building new companies, which, by the way, turned out to be correct. And all these people focused on consumer and fintech was kind of neither at the time, right? You'd had some historical successes. Obviously, Intuit is an amazing company and great plans have been sold to Microsoft. There'd been a few that had made it. Financial engines made it through the bubble bursting, et cetera, but not enough for anyone to build a practice on. Right. PayPal might have been the biggest story of that era. But even folks like I worked with Reed Hoffman, a number of other folks from PayPal, even the folks who worked at PayPal weren't so excited to do PayPal again. Right. It was so hard. A lot of them felt like I'm not sure we'd want to do that or we could do that again. Obviously, they all went off to do amazing things. So it's all fine. But but I believed at the time strongly that things had changed. We had developed a number of new business models. We had learned different ways to engage users. And most importantly, trust was at a different level. A lot of consumer market, a lot of the business market, we forget it's about psychology, about trust. People who grew up with technology feel differently about that technology than people who had to encounter it later in life, right? And so every decade, you have people who grew up with more recent technology, more technology, they trust it differently. And I believed about 10, 15 years ago that things had changed, that there were enough people who had grown up with technology, trusted it, that they would actually trust their money with technology. And money is fundamentally a trust business. And so it turned out to be true. We saw an amazing boom. We've seen every level of the stack, platform technologies, integration technologies, applications and services. Look at, I mean, there are millions of people who trust computers now to make financial decisions with their investments. That's an amazing thing. Hundreds of millions of people, billions of people are trusting mobile devices, etc., with their payments, their credentials, moving money around. How many people have applications that track their finances or help them save acorns? was on the board of for six years, millions of people pay acorns to help them save just a little bit every month and build a better financial life. This is an amazing thing. But yeah, none of this was obvious back in 2012. But I I met a a lot of wonderful founders then. There were some people who believed that. That's when I met Brian Armstrong and they just raised the seed for Coinbase, believing in what crypto could be, meeting Ken at Credit Karma and believing that everyone, you didn't have to pay to keep track of your credits and finances, that everyone deserved that information. Obviously, you see Wealthfront and acorns and phenomenal success. It's been fantastic to watch. How difficult or challenging was it to get the other people at Greylock to believe in what you were seeing in the future? Oh, that's that actually was that's actually a great story. And the Greylock team is fantastic. And I was working with amazing people, like I said, Reed Hoffman, David Z, John Lilly, etc., James Slavitt, all these great people. But you know, venture also people have to figure out what to specialize in, right? Like venture capital is actually a very hard business to be in, right? Why would a founder come to you? How would they even know who you are? How would they reach you? How would you wreck? Everyone focuses on the picking problem of, well, how do you decide who to invest in? But there's a little hubris in there, right? Like venture capitalists tend to pretend like they had a choice of any company they could have invested in. The truth is actually most private companies never come knocking on any particular venture capitalist door. And so focus helps the people involved, helps the technologies know the market opportunities, but more importantly, be someone that people would come to. So 
at the time, Greylock didn't have anyone focused on what we now call fintech, et cetera. And so they were very happy to let me go around and meet with any founder that I wanted to. And actually, the team really helped. I wouldn't have met those people without introductions from other folks within Greylock or in my network, et cetera. So it's collaborative that way. I do remember, I think John may have made a joke at one point that, about crypto. Where he was like, well, Adam has an MBA and he's always liked coins. Like, he should go figure this out. But in truth, it was a wonderful culture. And Greylock has a history of not just backing companies, but occasionally incubating and, and working with founder stuff. That's why I was an EIR there versus other places I could have been. So they were very supportive of building out the space. And, and like I said, it was it turns out that it wasn't exactly right. Like, I don't think anyone in 2012 really saw what fintech would turn into over the next decade. But the willingness to dive in, not just to the technology, not just to the markets and the business knowledge, but actually go meet people who are the founders who believe. What do they think they're doing? I learned so much from those founders, right? Like when you talk to founders, the great thing about people trying to build a business is it has to make sense to them. They see a future. They see a product. They see um, something that most people don't. So much so that they're starting a company based on it. And so I, I thought that was actually the best part. I, I still think to this day that the best part of the job of being a venture capitalist is it's a license to meet every day new founders who believe that they've found a new opportunity that they think is amazing, technology, product, business. They may not all be right, or they may be wrong in different ways, but you can learn so much from people who are actually trying to build. When meeting all these founders, there's this saying that I heard that a good entrepreneur decides who they make rich and they get to decide whose money they actually will, will take. How did you go about, there was someone you met and you said, okay, I believe in their vision, but there's other venture capitalists competing to also invest in that round. How did you, were there any tricks or that or ways about going about convincing them that you were the right VC, that you were offering more than maybe the other competitors out there looking for that opportunity? Yeah, so this is one where I think very smart people can disagree. There are smart people, usually who come from more of the financial world, who see fundraising as purely a capital exercise, right? There's a cost of capital, there's different terms, there's a certain amount of money you need to build the business, there's risk, and you can evaluate it that way. I'm afraid I don't agree with that point of view. At least that hasn't been my experience. I think from more of a engineering builder point of view and almost traditional early stage venture capital, you have to think of financing as a hiring decision, right? When you get a lead investor, or even a small investor in a round, building companies takes a long time. Like even in the best cases, eight, 10, 12 years to build to kind of a venture class company and scale. And I mean, we talked about Apple and that sort of thing. Like that, the journey doesn't end there. I was just at an event at LinkedIn. LinkedIn just turned 20 years old. And look at the amazing scale, right? In terms of revenue, people, users, and they're still growing that business. They're still growing that product. And so I always recommend to founders that they think of it as a hiring decision, right? That person, those people, that firm will be with you a long time. Unfortunately, that makes the problem even harder, as if it wasn't hard enough to pitch investors, get them excited, get them to commit capital to your business, actually close the deal, right? It's not done until the money's wired. But you have, I really think you have to think of it as a hiring decision. And the reason I say a hiring decision is not just this idea, it's not a power dynamic. Obviously, investors have a lot of power in the equation with founders. But it's because when you think of hiring someone, we all know, like you're hiring an engineer, you're hiring a designer, you're hiring your first head, first salesperson, et cetera. That's not just a normal hire. Right. So much of building a company is building that team and getting the people who have the right skills, who can actually help you. Every hire has to increase the probability of success. 
and ideally increase the opportunity of the business beyond obviously what it costs to hire them, et cetera. And so I find that when I talk to founders about thinking about investors as a hiring decision, it, it activates a different part of their brain, a different part of their thinking. And they go like, oh, that's right. Like that investor who is so difficult doing this round, like they're not going to suddenly become less difficult when they sign the check, right? They're not going to be less difficult in board meetings. And that's not to say that difficult is always bad. Like maybe they ask hard questions. Maybe because of their background, they know something about the business you don't. Maybe they have a unique idea about how to lock in partnerships or distribution. Or maybe they'll give you good advice about how to think about the core economics to make your business successful. But whatever they are, however they behave, you have to expect that you're going to be with that person building that business for a very long time. And so it's just not as simple as who offers you the best terms, in my view. I think founders are very smart sometimes to take the term sheet that has a lower valuation, clean terms, but with a partner they actually can see building the business with, rather than someone that offers them the vanity valuation they want, the unicorn round that they can get into a a tech crunch piece. Those things feel good in the short term. But in the end, the only way you feel good in the long term is if you build a great business, you build a great product and service. And it's hard. You need all the help you can get. And then the investors are an important piece of that. Going back to fintech, behavioral finance. Now, this is something that from the research you have a passion for. Can you tell us a little bit about behavioral finance? Yeah, I, I would love to. And, and, and I didn't mention, I do teach a class at Stanford. So I do, I teach personal finance for engineers. Actually, seventh year kicks off uh, in just a few weeks. Um, yeah, it's a little bit of wish fulfillment for me. I wish that class existed when I was in school. It, it didn't. And Fortunately, the the head of the department agrees and allowed me to set up the course. It actually started as a talk that I gave at companies like eBay and LinkedIn. And actually, I've given that one hour talk at over 100 companies at this point. But so I do believe a lot in financial education. I think behavioral finance is an important set of insights, an important body of research, of understanding about how humans interact with money. It's funny for me, there's a lot of parallels in software and in finance, particularly on behavioral finance. One of the hardest problems as a designer of software is that the way that humans interact with technology is not fully rational, right? Dive and go back into to that more. Well, go back to the early experiments going in the 60s. Keyboards, command lines versus mice. This sounds silly, but these debates went on for decades. And it's because we feel good. There are some things that we do faster with the mouse than we do with a keyboard. But we don't remember our mistakes on the keyboard so much. We just remember when we hit the right keys and it does the right thing. Our brain like deletes out all those times we had a typo or had to go back and fix the command line, etc. But if you ask people, they think they're faster on the keyboard than they are on the mouse. And sometimes they are, but many times they're not. Like we, we don't trust technology. We're always worried it's a little unstable. Like what if the screen goes black? If you've ever helped a parent or a family member with a computer problem, I'm, I'm like IT support for my whole family. You realize that there's a trust problem there right? Like it's not physical. They don't trust it the same way they can trust a physical device. And the same thing is true with money, right? We have emotions about money, the way we spend money. There's a reason why people find it harder to spend cash than use a credit card, right? There's a reason why loss aversion triggers us to make decisions. We think there's a risk of losing something, everything from advertising all the way over to kind of how we make purchasing decisions, herd behavior, There's so many anchoring that there are so many behavioral finance insights that I find useful, not just for financial education and living a healthy financial life, but actually in the products and services that we build in fintech and just everywhere in the industry. Let's go into more more fintech. And I'm just kind of curious, but one, you've ton of investments over the years. Is there anything that you're seeing right now or in the last 
I don't know, 10 years that you thought were just game changers in that industry? Yeah, well, there's actually quite a few and they happen at all different levels, right? So some of it happens at the technology level, right? Or figuring out how to do something. Our comfort zone as an industry, everything from consumer behavior to technology platforms, the ability to link accounts and actually get access to the data is a fundamental change in both the user expectation and what you can do with the software. If you think about how hard it, I think back, how hard it was for PayPal to get anyone to link a bank account, right? And they came up with that micro deposit thing, which we all take for granted now, but that was actually something that PayPal had to figure out, which is like, hey, how do we prove that someone owns a bank account and, and, and do that sort of thing? And the banks certainly weren't going to build that platform. They had no interest. They could talk about it for decades. It was never going to happen. And so everything from account linking, I think APIs, not just for trading and investing, buying stocks, but APIs to open accounts. There were some legal regulatory pieces that had to happen there. There were some technology adoption practices. There was also just platforms and early companies showing that it's possible, right? Mint may not have ended up a unicorn, right? But it proved that actually you could get millions of people to link accounts and that there was a different way to help people with their money. Instead of having people type things in like an accountant, right? Which is what the Quicken era was all about. What if it could be automatic? What if somehow the software could tell you when something happened and monitor it for you? So all these things were great innovations, uh, I think, along the way. But now I look at my current company, Daffy. And what is Daffy about? Daffy is a, it's a donor advised fund for you. That's what Daffy stands for. It's simple idea that most of us believe that giving to charity is something that we should do on a regular basis, but most of us don't make time to do it. So what if there was a simple app that made it easy to put some money aside every week or every month for charity? Um, and then you'd have it in your hands. Anytime that someone asked you for a donation, anytime you wanted to give to a cause or a big event, you'd have it available. It sounds like a simple idea, but why could we build that app? How could we launch that with just a handful of engineers in a year? Okay, the regulatory piece. We now know how to do that, how to work with regulators and, and, and do all the right things to get those companies started. Um, companies like Plaid and Stripe make account linking and moving money trivial and easy. Companies like Sardine make um, KYC, AML, fraud detection much easier. You know, companies like Apex and, and, and others make it very easy to have the APIs, to have a custodian, to have a portfolio of assets and trade them. If you look at all the platform pieces that were needed to build Daffy, most of them were not around 10 years ago. And so that's really what I get excited about now is we're going through a, a real downturn in fintech. Right. Classically, like we had 10 amazing years building out all these companies and technologies, but economic environment changes. Some of those business models are cyclical. Some of them will work, some won't. And it's always dangerous with venture backed companies. You never have until you're profitable. You're always dependent on raising money every period of time. And so a lot of companies are struggling right now. But out of that fire, out of those ashes, I always believe come the new opportunities, all these new problems that we could take on. And obviously people are excited about a lot of the new things that are happening now. Speaking of Daffy, when you when you were envisioning it, were you did you know about all those five things you just mentioned all coming together and saying, okay, now is the right time for this? Or was it kind of just a work in progress going, we need this, oh, it's over here, we need it. And then just, it happened that everything synced up at the right time. Yeah, I think, well, certainly I did, right? In fact, so like most entrepreneurs, not everyone, but you know, maybe I'm just a little pedantic about these things. But you know, when I was at Greylock 2017, 2018, I had a list of different ideas to chase down for new companies, new products. I think that Google Doc got to 82 ideas. They were not all good, by the way. Anyway, 
some were really bad. So you put this Google Doc on your LinkedIn and shared it with the world. Oh, no, uh, there, there are definitely some bad ideas on there that don't need to see the light of day. Although it's funny, as an angel investor, some of my delight is that many of the ideas I couldn't figure out how to pursue. I, I find founders who are and actually making it work, which is always amazing. One of my lists on this document was what are great financial products that haven't been reinvented yet? Because I believe that all those pieces had changed. And one of them was the donor advice fund, which is an account that most people don't know exists. If you don't have a high-end financial advisor or accountant, you probably have never heard of it. But this idea that there actually is a tax-free account where you can put money aside for charity, get the tax deduction for a charitable donation, have the money invested tax-free in a wide range of portfolios, and then anytime you want to give to a charity, just make a recommendation for a grant and it happens. Great financial product. No one knows about it. And why? Because the business model of the industry is borrowed from the investment industry. So they charge for a percentage of assets under management. And it turns out the minute you build a business based on a percentage of assets under management, at some point, smart people figure out that there are some people who have a lot more assets than others. And they start catering the products and services to those group of people. And and that's what's happened with donor advised funds, right? A lot of the big funds, et cetera, they have products and services that are somewhat available, but they really focus on these high-end customers. And so it took a while. Actually, it took the better part of, of several years for me to say, wait, what if we approach this differently? What if the target wasn't the small number of people who have tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars? What if we focused on the nearly half of American households who give to charity every year? Why do they give to charity? How can technology make that better? And then just use the donor advised fund as the back end, right? The right regulatory structure for having an account for charity. Unfortunately, one of the best engineers I worked with at LinkedIn, Alejandro Crissa, had done some work on donors choose in the past, really passionate about the topic. We'd been talking about starting a company for years. I'd always tried to recruit him. It was very hard, very difficult to hire Alejandro. But he jumped in to do this with me and we decided to start that in the middle of pandemic, right? This is 2020. But yeah, to answer the question, one of the things you learn working with great venture capitalists is that to know what risks you're taking, right? With Daffy, we were not taking technology risks. Like thanks to all these great companies, all these great platforms, I was not very concerned about how hard the problem was to build a great donor advice. That, I thought it was an amazing differentiator. The platforms that the existing donor advised funds are built on, the incumbents, this is still a world where people email around PDFs, right? Like it's not like it's, they do not invest in technology. They invest in concierge service for their best customers who want advice on where to give, et cetera. And so I had no doubt that we could build something 10 times better, 20 times, 100 times better than what was in the market today. And the harder problem is always the product problem. It's always the, the distribution problem. It's the who will want this? How will they learn about it? What will cause them to take the leap to try it? And most importantly, will they love it? Will they love it so much that not only do they use it themselves, but they tell other people about it? And so that's what we spent a lot of time on when we were starting Daffy. And we're very early. So going to that user feedback, how are you measuring success then? Is it the amount of donations? Is it amount of people that tell their network to get on the platform? Is it the amount of time that they search for companies or charities to donate to? What's currently the, the metrics that you're tracking really closely? Well, so I, I think that's a great question. I'm a big believer in tracking metrics. One of the hardest things though in the early days when you're looking for product market fit and you're trying to figure out if you get the product right, you really don't have any scale metrics, right? So you always want to instrument things. You always want to look at the data, but as a founder, you have to be looking at the stories too, because you're not going to get a million, like at LinkedIn, you could roll out an A-B test 
on 1% of the audience and get a statistically significant result within hours if you wanted to. No problem. The scale things are at these days, probably you could get answers in even shorter time. Amazing. You don't have that at a startup. I can't tell you in the early days of Wealthfront how much we tried to do things by data. And we did where we could, but very few flows had enough traffic to actually figure that out. And so you always have to balance that with the basic design principle. This is why I like design thinking. This is why I like the principles of thinking through. And when fintech, it's even more fundamental. So as an angel investor, but also as a founder and, and doing Daffy, step one, you're building a financial product. How does it create value for people? The first place where I see founders go wrong with financial products and services, especially in fintech, is they're so focused on how they will make money that they're missing the point that if the financial product does not actually create value for the customer, I might be old fashioned on this regard, but I believe the software industry mostly was built on building products and services that create so much value for your customer that they're willing to part with a small piece of that value created and that funds your business. But you should be creating five, seven, eight, ten times as much value for your customers as you're capturing yourself. But you can't do that unless you know how you create financial value and who does it create financial value for. Once you know that, then you get down to, okay, when I explain this to people or how do I position this with people, this is such business fundamentals. No one talks about this anymore, but the four P's are still a thing, right? You know, how you position a product, how you price it, how you promote it in the product itself, they all matter. And so getting that piece right of like, now that you know who this is for and who it creates value for, how do you explain it to them? Where are they? How do you reach them? And you're experimenting with distribution. And then of course, you get those early customers. Do they use it? Do they like it? Do they love it? I am very much a fan of this idea with early customers that you don't just look for the average behavior, which is what metrics show you. Who really loves it? Who irrationally loves it? Where does it spark that kind of... Who are the people who love it so much that they almost become evangelical about it? They have to tell other people about it. And I don't think you can skip any of those steps. I told my whole team at Daffy, right? The first year was build the team, build the product. The next year was very much like, can we operate this product? Who will use it? Who will love it? And can we fulfill the promises we made to them as a platform? And only once you complete those steps, you get out there and say, no, we have a good product. It creates value. And the people who find this product love it. We need to get more people to try this, right? We need to get more people in this product. I know it sounds a little bit too patient, because we all know that distribution is the hardest problem. Whether you're building a B2B product or a direct-to-consumer product, distribution almost always is the hardest problem for startups. But it's as hard as that problem is, if you don't get those early product pieces right, I happen to be in the camp that says that you can win the battle and, and lose the war, right? Like you can get out there, get a lot of people into a product that doesn't create value, that doesn't actually lead them to love the product. And that becomes almost impossible to manage. You have this giant churn problem and all of a sudden you're looking at the metrics and the churn is super high. Churn is high because you've got a lot of people who aren't getting value of the product and you have a product that they don't love. Yes, you can work that problem, but most startups don't have that luxury of time, right? And so this gets back to the question you asked earlier about investors, right? When you're a founder and you're setting up a journey for your company, a journey for your product, et cetera, you have to find investors who also support the way you're going to build the business. You can't tell them one thing and then do another. And I was fortunate, Daffy, the, the investors we have are some of the best in fintech. Folks like Ribbit Capital, folks like XYZ who understand this process, believe in this process, and will support founders going through this journey. But it is not easy. And I wish that metrics would answer all those problems. Once you have product market fit, once you have metrics, everything changes. Because now founders have to get out of their own head. You had intention. You thought you were building something. You thought it created value for these people. 
But once you see that curve grow, once you see more and more people come in, you have to have humility. I thought I was doing this, but what are thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions? What are those clicks telling me about what actually creates value, what actually sparks delight? And that's where I'm a big believer that you have to move to kind of metrics-based. Sorry, I almost dropped the phone. <laughs> I should put it down. <laughs> With that, for our audience out there, if they want to know and learn more about Daffy, what's the best way to go about doing that? And what are we going to see from Daffy in the next 12, 24 months? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, first of all, of course, if you're the type of person who gives to charity at all regularly, you should have an account with Daffy. So go to daffy.org. It's free to sign up. We have everything from a basic membership, which lets you donate to any legal charity in the U.S. Um, all the way up, we have family plans and we even have high-end plans for people who want to contribute stock or crypto for the amazing tax benefits, right? When you donate stock or crypto to charity, it's a big win for the charity. And it's also a big win for you because it turns out that you never end up paying the capital gains taxes on those investments. But whatever you are, you give a few hundred dollars to charity or a few hundred thousand dollars to charity, we're very happy to have you try it out and check out the product. We see ourselves as innovators in the category. So we have been pushing heavily on the technology. We think that's one of the things we can uniquely add here. One of the ideas we had initially with Daffy was just if we took all the innovation that's gone on in fintech and consumer software the last 10, 15 years, all those features that get people to spend more and save more and invest more and applied it to giving, we could do that. And so a lot of the features, for example, we rolled out this year, right? Everything at the high end from support for financial advisors on the platform, our family plan, you can add your children, you can add your parents, your siblings, up to 24 people on this fund and actually talk about and interact around giving. My children on the account, every time I make a donation, they um, see it, they get the notification and they can have asked, oh, I didn't know we supported this organization. How long have we done that? Why do we do that? And it's a chance to have real conversations with people you care about this important part of your life. And we rolled out an API platform. But yeah, the big thing that you're going to see from us over the next 12 to 24 months is really that platform idea, right? Every large bank, every large financial institution already figured this out, right? Fidelity has a donor advice fund. Schwab has a donor advice fund. Vanguard has a donor advice fund. And yet, if you look across all this amazing group of products and services in fintech, if you look at all these advisory platforms, all these financial advice platforms out there, they don't have it. It's missing. And so we realized with building Daffy that we thought we were just building a great product, but then we realized that, no, it, it's going to serve even bigger purpose, that all these new companies don't need to build their own donor advice funds. They don't need to spin up that organization. We can do that for them. And so we rolled out in May a set of APIs so that you can integrate Daffy into any application and service. And so I think you're going to see Daffy appear in more and more of the apps and services that you love. And for us, that's fantastic because our point of view, our mission is very simple. We want to help people be more generous more often, right? We have this vision of a world where everybody regularly puts some money aside for those less fortunate than themselves. I know it sounds idealistic, but that's what we're fighting for. And so from our point of view, whether you're using Daffy directly or you're using it through another product and service, the point is it gets people to give more. And that's what we're really trying to do. We even rolled out a workplace product this year. We were very lucky. Some great companies, including OpenAI, have decided that every Every employee should have an account like this. They have a 401k for retirement. Why not have a Daffy account for charity? And they actually match their employees putting aside money for charity and the company matches those contributions. And so um, we're very excited about all these opportunities to help people give. But it all starts with the basics. Just go to daffy.org and, and, and try it out. See if it makes you more generous. All right. We'll have that link in the show notes. And when I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast, I'm an investment banker, mergers, acquisition, growth capital. Connect with me on LinkedIn. 
and go to our website, thesiliconvalleypodcast.com, where we'll have this interview, our past interviews, and what we're working on. And with that, Adam, I got to thank you for taking the time to be on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me here. It was wonderful. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.